Hello and welcome to another episode of Matafal, the last of three on the country that gave the world Air Chief Marshal Khufu. This is the next episode on the Kingdom of Thailand. I'm going to be really quick with the news today because there's a lot to cover. The US have sanctioned Lebanese allies of Hezbollah for the first time and hundreds of thousands have been displaced by floods in Sudan. In the Americas, Ecuador's unemployment has surged to nearly 85% and Jamaica's governing party, the center-right JLP, has been re-elected. Lastly, a huge fire in Moria refugee camp in Greece has left more than 13,000 people in desperate need for emergency shelter. We begin with a quick note on geography and biodiversity in Thailand. Thailand is the 50th largest country in the world, clocking in at over 500,000 square kilometers, which is just a little smaller than Yemen. It's located on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula in Southeast Asia, and it's surrounded by Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, and shares a maritime border with Vietnam. It's connected to the Malay Peninsula by the Kra Isthmus in the south. There are broadly six geographically distinct regions in Thailand. The Thai highlands are in the north, Korat Plateau in the northeast, the Mekong River in the east, and flat Chao Phraya River Valley in the centre. The country has islands in the Andaman Sea that are popular tourist resorts, and the sea itself is a precious natural resource. Central Thailand experiences predominantly tropical savanna climate, and the seasons are caused as a result of the monsoon winds. The majority of South Thailand experiences tropical monsoon climate, and parts of the south also have a tropical rainforest climate. The rainy monsoon season lasts from May till October. Winter starts thereafter and transitions to summer around February. Summers can get incredibly warm, but for the most part of the year, there is very little variation in temperature, which sits in the high 20 degrees due to the tropical proximity of Thailand. Thailand has a mediocre but improving performance in the Environment Performance Index as it performs quite badly in areas such as poor air quality and the climate and energy sector due to high degrees of carbon dioxide production. They have though been performing well in water resource management and their performance is improving in sanitation. Thailand has an incredibly rich resource of flora and fauna. Despite being the 50th largest country in the world, it has nearly 10% of all species of living organisms and is the 8th most biodiverse country in the world. It supports upward of 10,000 plant species, 300 species of mammal, around 1,000 species of bird and a further 500 reptile and amphibian species. Several of these species are currently threatened and at risk of extinction as a result of both deforestation and global warming. Of its total land, Thailand has a total of around 90,000 square kilometers of protected forest and maritime area. There are several projects, including those sanctioned by the UNDP, to expand conservation efforts and sustainable practices within Thailand. Thailand is also the 20th most populous country in the world. The ethnic makeup of Thailand is actually quite difficult to discern due to the imposed Thaification through the latter half of the 20th century. The prevalent religion, though, is Theravada Buddhism, with Islam at a very, very distant second. 
Buddhism is a dominant part of Thai identity and culture, and active participation in Buddhism is among the highest in the world, with 94% of the population identifying as Buddhist. Let's talk about the economy, because Thailand is the second largest economy in Southeast Asia after Indonesia, and is classified as a newly industrialized country. Its per capita GDP, as of 2019, was over 20,000 US dollars, and it ranks 66th for purchasing power parity adjusted per capita GDP. Its economy is largely dependent on exports, which account for over 60% of the country's GDP. It has the second largest international reserve in Southeast Asia, and its current account surplus comes in at 10th highest in the world. Now you might be thinking, how does a country that cannot stick to a single constitution for more than a couple of years have one of the lowest rates of unemployment in the world? So let's find out. The current Thai economy is an industrial export-based economy, but this hasn't always been the case. Thailand's economic systems underwent significant restructuring in the latter half of the 20th century as it transitioned away from a dependency on agriculture. Thailand's industrialization happened broadly across three periods, from the 1950s till the 1970s, the 1980s till 1997, and 1997 till now. Let's begin with the 1950s, which is when the process of import substitution began. In 1951, the agriculture sector accounted for 44% of the GDP. For context, the agriculture sector contributes a paltry 8% of the GDP today. Post the Second World War, the Thai economy took a hit, and the political rhetoric became increasingly nationalist. This saw the ruling military junta pushing anti-communist agenda, which precluded trade from proximate nations such as China and Vietnam. If you remember, this included measures such as imposing tariffs on rice export to China. A national economic and social plan was implemented in 1961. In the 1960s, Thailand grew rapidly, averaging an annual growth rate of around 7%. The import substitution policies that were thus implemented involved the creation of several joint ventures between imported technology which came mostly from Japan and domestic assembly lines and domestic assembly lines. Towards the end of the 70s, Thailand began experiencing some problems, including a decrease in US investment, budget deficits and inflation. And this catalyzed a second phase in Thai growth as Thailand began promoting its exports. The GDP share of exports was a minuscule 0.04% in 1970 and has grown to over 50% of the GDP share today. Measures to increase the competitiveness of their exports involved devaluing the Thai currency, the Thai baht, three times between 1981 and 1984. They also replaced its fixed exchange rate with a multi-currency basket peg system in which the US dollar was still weighed at around 80%. The economy also began diversifying its exports, moving from mainly rice to other agricultural products including rubber and sugar, as well as manufactured goods. Thailand's growth in the 1980s was relatively capital-intensive, and its general growth can be measured using a production function. This sort of function generally maps whether output growth is caused more due to changes in quality and quantity of production factors such as labor and capital, or changes in the efficiency in how these factors are used. In the case of Thailand in the 1980s, it was the former, as the efficiency of production factor use, which is a function of technological progress and input use efficiency, was not consummate to the rate of growth. That said, 
there was still increases in the efficiency of the production process. The changes in quality and quantity of production factors were primarily due to three reasons. First, an increase in labor input and labor force participation. Second, a high investment in education improving labor quality. And the third, high rates of saving that allowed for capital accumulation within the country. Any increase in production factor efficiency at this stage was structural and caused by a shift in production factor allocation from less productive sectors such as agriculture to more productive sectors such as industry. This was also accompanied by an increase in investment and corporate savings. The other change that accompanied labour was the diversification from paddy farming that had begun in the 1950s. This did a few key things. It made more land available, it increased employment in the country, and the presence of thriving agricultural infrastructure allowed the government to invest more in other industries and sector reform. Despite the initial growth being caused by changes in quality and quantity of productive resources, recently it has been complemented increasingly by production efficiency gains. Should the former not be accompanied by the latter, growth tends to become unsustainable. While there would have been some efficiency gains over the past half century, growth in Thailand now depends on it more than ever. Now, despite structural growth, agricultural yields remain low due to a lack of investment. But this was compensated for by the increase in acreage initially. The accumulation of capital in and of itself though did not spurn the Thai economy. There are four other overarching changes that took place in the 80s. The first two are stable macroeconomic conditions due to the high levels of savings and the countries being incredibly open to foreign trade. Some of the money that was saved by not investing in agriculture was routed to human capital development by improving education and healthcare in the country. The final reason is the setup of private enterprises and rapid financial investment. There were two broad types of businesses that began setting up in Thailand in the late 1980s. The first was metropolitan businesses in and around Bangkok, which were exposed to international trade and competition. The second were provincial businesses that focused on patronage and short-term profits and were largely present outside Bangkok. The metropolitan businesses played a large role in developing industry in Thailand, as well as accruing corporate savings, which helped macroeconomic stability in Thailand. Foreign direct investment increased drastically from the 1970s, and foreign capital intensity grew much more quickly than domestic capital intensity. This was accompanied by growing rates of import as well. I'll explain why this helped economic growth in the long term in just a second. What didn't help economic growth was the constant political turmoil. The lack of stable political institutions meant that the Thai state was never able to implement structural policies to aid the Thai economy. This has meant that the Thai state has not invested much in research and development and that attempts to decongest Bangkok through physical infrastructure development were always less than successful. Despite an inability to institute structural reform, the Thai state was incredibly cautious about stability and adopted conservative fiscal and monetary policies to fortify the economy against the recession. This looked like strict urban labor market practices which kept wages low and conservative borrowing practices. Despite the growth and the macroeconomic stability, Thailand could not avoid the Asian crash of 1997. Through the 70s and 80s, the Chinese economy was also growing and providing competition to the labor market, especially after the yuan was devalued in 1994. 
The US dollar, as a result of Yuan's devaluation, strengthened in this period, which meant that the Thai baht, which was pegged against the US dollar, also became stronger. This made labor and production costs in Thailand all the more expensive, and countries that were looking to import Thai goods suddenly found it more expensive to import these goods. Imports became cheaper and the current account deficit in Thailand increased as there was already a growing trend of increased import to add to the drop in exports. While foreign investment continued, the baht became increasingly vulnerable to speculative attacks. It was bet against an attack on the spot market by selling the local currency for US dollars. Before the crisis, even within Thailand, there was a massive borrowing of US dollars. This saw the supply of the baht increase and the currency devalue. The financial system was grossly underprepared to handle this situation. This meant that banks and other financial intermediaries engaged in risky lending practices as banks owed more in dollars than they held in reserves. In Thailand, this specifically looked like financial institutions starting to lend, not based on market research, but based on relationships with borrowers with more money going into personal and governmental connections for short-term, ill-thought-out projects as increasing numbers of loans went into real estate. As a result, a weak real estate bubble was created through speculation and businesses were not able to pay the increase in interest rates on the loans they had taken. Speculators also bet against the baht in the forward market as they entered contracts with obligations to repay the Thai baht in the future which allowed buyers to profit should the Thai baht become cheaper. The immaturity of Thai financial institutions showed as the Central Bank of Thailand released a bunch of their own forward contracts, which also bet against the Thai baht. They were further forced to sell their dollar reserves to buy back Thai baht on the spot market to prevent excess devaluation of the currency. Further, banks had expanded their credit to a point where there was a classic liquidity crisis. This became the final nail in the coffin where there was a banking panic and depositor fearing insolvency began en masse bank withdrawals. In 1997, Thailand shifted from a fixed currency to a floating currency, which devalued the path by nearly 30% and the government spent over a quarter of its financial reserves trying to save the currency. The results of all this were a terrible economic slump that saw a 25% increase in unemployment and several corporations going bankrupt. Individuals began amassing debt and the Thai government was of little to no help because of the constant high turnover. Eventually, Thailand received a 17.2 billion US dollar bailout from the IMF, who enforced a set of rules to decrease patronage influence in Thailand. Following this, the baht was stabilized, interest rates lowered, and some financial restructuring took place. Thailand did this so well, in fact, that it managed to pay back the IMF loan two years ahead of schedule. The crash played a role in bringing Thaksin of the Thai Rak Thai party into power, as a significant portion of the Thai populace believed that the recession was engineered by foreign intervention and therefore bought into Thaksin's economic policies. These policies in the early 21st century saw injections of cash into rural small and medium enterprises, infrastructure development, and low-interest agricultural loans. All of these appealed to the rural populace and helped the post-recession economy recover. In 2004, the Thai economy suffered due to a tsunami on the Indian Ocean, and growth slowed between 2004 and 2007. The country fully recovered from the effects of the tsunami a few years later, and its economy has been growing over the past decade. 
Before we mention the current economic issues that face Thailand, there are two important factors that have helped and continue to help growth in Thailand. The first has been industrialization. But not just creating factories and manufacturing plants, but more so technology-based growth. As it was an export-based economy, Thailand's foreign exchange reserves grew, which allowed it to import foreign technology to improve industrial efficiency. Until the crash in 97 though, barely any companies worked on research and development and deepening their technology. But after 1997, several conglomerates and SMEs invested in their R&D departments. Several startups also emerged, beginning to create their own technology and there have been demands for improved efficiency of technological services. All this has meant that the gap in capital accumulation and productive factor efficiency has decreased. Despite the push to innovate, Thailand still lags behind other Asian countries such as South Korea and Taiwan when it comes to technological innovation. The second big factor that helped the Thai economy has been the corporate sector. The presence of conglomerates, large firms and SMEs has given rise to a healthy economic environment where firms have been able to engage with international trade. Despite governmental reform not being particularly sustained in the past, the incumbent party had passed an economic initiative called Thailand 4.0 in 2016. This seeks to overcome the middle income trap. On that note, let's talk about the five large economic problems that Thailand faces. The first is the middle income trap, which is a developmental situation when countries with high initial growth stagnate at a middle income range. This does not allow economies to develop any further and become a developed country or a high income country. There are two identified and much talked about methods to help escape the income trap in the literature. The first is an investment in technical economic policies which seek to improve production efficiency. The second is political economic policy and a look at structural reasons why you're stuck in the middle income trap. The latter is much harder in the case of Thailand due to high levels of inequality and a dominance by an oligarchy. This brings us to the second problem the high levels of inequality. It is incredibly difficult for SMEs and new firms to grow in Thailand for a plethora of reasons such as a lack of credit history, no economies of scale, and a general lack of assets and investment. This has meant that large firms have grown disproportionately and allowed for a consolidation of the oligarchy. There is also incredible amounts of regional disparity as most of industry is concentrated in and around Bangkok while income rates are much lower in all other parts of the country. This lopsided economic development has given rise to high degrees of wealth inequality among the population of Thailand. The three main problems are resource misallocation, a lack of competition due to the dominance of local markets by a few large firms, and a vulnerability to shocks. The last of these three, as well as a high degree of dependency on exports, is why Thailand's economic outlook is the worst in Southeast Asia following the pandemic. A final note on international relations and Thailand's involvement in regional trade blocs. Thailand's foreign policy has always been a combination of pragmatism and principled alliance. Before the 1970s, Thailand was a close ally of the US, but since then it has tried to form closer ties with its neighbours and the Southeast Asian trade bloc. Thailand is a member of the World Trade Organization and the ASEAN Free Trade Area. The most exported products from Thailand are machinery, electronics, chemicals and food, most of which go to the US and China. Their largest imports come from China and Japan and are mostly capital and intermediate goods. 
Thailand's relationship with China, starting the last quarter of the 20th century, has shaped the Thai economy and foreign policy today. Thailand has a free trade agreement with China and has become closer to the China through the Belt and Road Initiative or the One Belt One Road. Thailand sits on the proposed China-Indochina Peninsula Corridor, which would aid trade within the Eastern Economic Corridor as well. Recently, China has increased military spending within Thailand and within the Indochinese Peninsula too. Proposed investments also include roads, railways, energy infrastructure, information technology, and transport to further serve to help unlock Thailand's productive capacity. That said, there is a degree of caution that needs to be exercised in taking too many loans and increasing a dependency on China, as defaulting on these loans could see Thailand losing territory to the Chinese state. At the end of all this, where does the Thai economy sit today? Well, it's an export-based economy whose economic outlook is not particularly great following the pandemic as global trade looks likely to decrease. It is a politically unstable country, which means that structural reform of economic sectors has not always been the easiest. Albeit this, it is a country with stable macroeconomic conditions that has been growing at an incredible rate, bar the crash in 1997. It's an economy that still has low productive efficiency compared to others in the region, but this does mean that there are a set of tractable policies that can be implemented to help unlock sustained growth. There are issues of inequality and elite capture that need addressing, and it'll be interesting to see both the political and socio-economic state as the year moves on, with student protests unlikely to quell anytime soon. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have access to an Apple device. Next week, we're gearing up for a surprise, so stay tuned and stay listening. For now, thank you for joining me on the last of three episodes on Thailand. This has been Mattafile. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.